good afternoon and welcome. My name is Upasna. I'm the managing editor of the International Growth Center, and I'm really pleased to invite all of you to this afternoon's session on the IGC LSE Literary Research Festival, which is a little bit of a mouthful. Uh, we're all here to talk this afternoon about how we can transform the economic lives of the ultra-poor. And we have a really exciting panel for you this afternoon. Um, this issue of ultra-poverty or extreme poverty is certainly one that has captivated the attention of development practitioners, policymakers, and social scientists around the world. And it's become, in many ways, very much integrated into the lexicon of development language in the last five to ten years. And I think even more so from last year when the United Nations established uh, extre eliminating extreme poverty as one of the primary sustainable development goals, we've seen it become very much to the top of global development agendas. And I think the reason for this captivation with extreme poverty has been that in the last 20 years, we've seen a tremendous amount of progress and development happen. There have been a lot of changes from healthcare and education to liberalization of trade, improving manufacturing and access to global value chains that have really transformed the growth trajectories of many developing countries. But what tends to be a very persistent and rather unaffected segment of the extreme of the of the poor countries that we look at is this segment of households that live underneath the extreme poor line. These are households that typically subsist on less than $1.90 a day, which as a definition is not necessarily very useful. It doesn't really tell us what it means to be extremely poor or to be ultra poor. But it is a good launching pad or a starting ground for starting to think more about why is it that these particular households seem to be facing such a pernicious and persistent form of poverty that is very difficult to break even over successive generations. So if we start to think about this more carefully, I think we, we can try and understand a little bit more about what is the universal or shared experience of extremely poor households, despite context, culture, class, or socioeconomic backgrounds. And I think the one universal shared experience that these households tend to have is a shared sense of vulnerability. So if you're looking at households that are living on less than $1.90 a day, these are typically households that don't have access to land or formal titling of land. They typically work in very insecure or very kind of temporary kinds of jobs, whether it's agricultural field labor or domestic service. These are typically households for whom the smallest of shocks, whether it's a health shock or a savings shock or something more cyclical or seasonal within the labor markets, can be incredibly devastating and oftentimes push them very quickly into the brink of extreme deprivation. So when we start to think about this problem and try and think about how we solve it and address it, it becomes a very complex and difficult thing to try and understand on a global or macro scale because of the nature of sort of borderless nature of this extreme poverty. So without giving a little too much away from the videos that we're going to be watching this afternoon, we're going to look at a very innovative program that has come out of a Bangladeshi NGO called BRAC that has tried to provide a very innovative transfer program that has worked in a very wide number of contexts in places where traditional poverty reduction programs have typically failed. And this afternoon, we're really lucky to have with us Lewis Temple, the executive director of BRAC UK, who's going to be able to provide a lot of experience and background about the philosophy and mission of BRAC and kind of where we expect this to go in the future. We're also really lucky to have on the panel with us this afternoon Professor Robin Burgess. Robin is a professor of economics here at the LSC. He's also the director of the IGC, so he's also my boss. Uh, so no hard questions. Um, we're also really lucky because Robin is one of the lead researchers on the randomized control trials systemic evaluation that was done on the first of BRAC's programs in Bangladesh. And we also have with us on the panel Naila Kabir. Professor Kabir is a professor of development and economics, sorry, an economics professor of development and gender here at the LSC as well. 
and she's also an affiliated faculty member at the Gender and South Asia Institutes, and she brings with us, brings with her a really wide range of experience and a prolific amount of writing and research on the issues of social justice, women's social and economic empowerment, and a particular sense of interest on the issues and interrelated linkages between poverty and patriarchy that are, I think, particularly contextually relevant to Bangladesh and South Asia as a whole. So without too much more talking for me, um, Lewis, it would be great if you could kind of give us a little bit of background on BRAC and sort of the philosophy that started this program and maybe cue us up for what we're about to see with the video. Thank you, Pastor. Now that was uh, very, very uh, helpful. I'm just very happy to be here um, with colleagues at, at the LSC and everybody here. Um, we're looking at the, the topic of the um, literary festival that we're part of today is around utop utopia. And actually, you know, as the pastor mentioned, the governments of the world have agreed just recently in September to um, sign up to the, something called the Sustainable Development Goals, um, which is trying to define a utopia within 15 years. And one of the key focus of that, uh, of those, one of, the, of those goals, is the eradication of extreme poverty. Um, uh, which, you know, is the mission of BRAC, is, the, is, is a world without poverty. Um, BRAC is a Bangladeshi organization established just after the independence of, of Bangladesh in the early 1970s um, and has had right from the very beginning of its founding a strong vision around achieving significant scale. Um, as the founder of BRAC likes to say, small might be beautiful, but big is necessary. So BRAC, um, starting in the 1970s, has had quite a holistic view uh, of, of poverty and was one of the pioneers of, uh, of microfinance in Bangladesh, which has um, spread uh, to many other countries. Uh, but BRAC's approach right from the very beginning was, was a more holistic view, uh, with microfinance as part of the solution, but not everything. Um, so has provided a range of other services, including education, health, agricultural development and, and other support. But by, but by the sort of 1980s and 1990s, it became very clear for BRAC um, that there was this group in society that were missing out on um, the benefits of microfinance, the benefits of the education programs we were running, um, were not accessing markets, uh, were not benefiting from, from the growing economy in Bangladesh. Um, and we defined this group as, as the ultra-poor who are um, the, the very bottom category of, 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 of the extreme poor as categorized by the UN and others. Um, and around 2002, BRAC started to develop a, a model um, that has become called targeting the ultra-poor or the graduation approach. Um, and Ipasa describes um, some of that, uh, which is a, a sort of a combination, a sort of package of support to these households, generally they're headed by women, um, to assist them over a two-year period to escape from extreme poverty. Um, and that package includes um, a, a stipend uh, to, to support their consumption, um, usually an asset transfer, which is um, uh, dependent on the market conditions, but um, the households have, have generally favoured uh, livestock, um, and importantly, uh, weekly visits from BRAC staff uh, in the field, um, and that's a very a, a significant element of the program, is that very intensive hand-holding process over the two years to support them 
to um, uh, with, uh, with financial literacy, accessing other services and building the confidence to start their own small enterprises using the assets and the other uh, support they're getting. Um, access to healthcare, access to education, uh, plus helping develop uh, savings as well, are all part of that support. So it's a sort of very intensive push to these households. And you'll hear a little bit later about some of the research and the results um, done by colleagues at the IGC, um, which have been very convincing about the results of that. So we're, we're really excited um, that this approach is getting um, quite a lot of attention around the world um, by other NGOs, uh, by policymakers, and also by governments. And I think we'll talk a bit, a bit, a bit more about this later. But we've, we've got a little video to show which sort of introduces uh, the approach from Bangladesh. On from this, there's been a longer engagement with BRAC, and the IGC, along with several other institutions, have worked very hard to measure not only the impact on immediate households that were part of this program, but also to think more carefully about the sustainability and scalability of this kind of a program. And so, the video that you're about to see now is an IGC video that reflects upon the results of a very long-term uh, evaluation of the program, looking at two, four, and seven-year results from the start of uh, the evaluation. So, Lewis, if I can start with you. Um, this is, I think, the second or third time now that I've seen the BRAC video, and I'm incredibly struck by the confidence with which these women speak, not just about the fact that they're doing better and they're earning more, but Turnus talks about, you know, moving from selling pickle or moving from selling puffed rice to pickles, and she's talking about market segmentation, diversifying, adding higher value products to customer bases. Like, what is, what is it about the BRAC model that you think is attributable to this? Is it something that's conscientious, or do you think it's a sort of a happy byproduct that empowerment and confidence is something that these women really do? Well, as I mentioned earlier, I think that the, 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 the very intensive um, visits by BRAC staff um, to these households to support these women is a very important factor in building that confidence. Um, there's been many other you know, programs around the world which are just simply a transfer of assets that don't necessarily provide that kind of hand-holding support as well. So I think that's, for me, that's probably one of the key elements. And um, you know, as we're going forward, we're looking at, of, of, in different, different programs, as it replicates, you know, what, what elements can we take out? What, can we, what, are, what are actually the, the, the essential elements in the program? But for me, it is, it is that sort of hand-holding um, support. Um, these are weekly visits of these households. I mean, that's a lot. These people have not had those kind, that kind of support before. Someone coming to see them, expressing interest in them, helping with them, them with their day-to-day -day problems, um, and that's critical. But it's, a, but it's a big part of the cost of the program, uh, as you saw. It's half of the cost of the program of these, of these visits. Um, so, you know, is that essential or not? It's something that um, we'd like to explore further. But for me, that's a really important element. Thank you. That's really useful. Um, one of the words that we saw a lot in the video and I think comes up a lot in the literature around this program for BRAC is transformational. Um, I'd be interested to hear from both Robin and Nyla. Do you think that that's a fair assessment of the impact that this program has had? And if so, what is it about the BRAC model that differentiates it from other programs? Why not simply give a woman $280 and let her run with it on her own? Robin? Yeah, so I think when I sort of came across this program in 2006, I went out into the Bangladeshi countryside 
<coughs> accompanied by a, a translator and I chose women from the BRAC records who had been in the pilot stage of this between two and four years and I went to the villages and I interviewed them and the main thing I was interviewing them about was not so much the program but whether they'd done anything apart from the program so they got the, you know, the livestock or something but had they bought land had they uh, diversified because I think once you have that happening it's a real strong signal that something transformational has happened but during the course of those interviews of course somebody like me shows up in a Bangladeshi village and everybody <laughs> from several villages uh, comes in and takes a look at and what was interesting there is that the when you looked at the people who had not been reached, the women who had not been reached, they were talking, and so I visited some of them as well. And then those who had been two and four years in, you had some of those images. It was more rural than that. But the women sort of stood a little prouder. They, they, they were willing to stand alongside the, the landowner and talk, which is uh, what people who hadn't been in the program weren't willing to do. So there was something, and I, so both the kind of very subjective impression I had something had happened, and the fact that it actually moved away from the, um, you know, the, the, the asset that was being transferred, made me think, well, maybe there's something here, and then it took a year to convince Brack to do a randomized trial and so forth. But I think the moment we don't quite know what, what is transformational, my sense is that it's not just the purely economic, it's just not just the 280. I think these are women living in sort of very poor households. You know, the, the, the women I met who hadn't been in the program who had been selected to be were visibly dirty, their children were dirty, their children were in very, like, ripped up clothes. Um, and so I think, you know, you take the, that type of woman and you lavish this type of attention, which is quite an intense suddenly they were at the bottom of the pecking order and now they have village committees, they have weekly visits. I think probably what ha part of what happens is they convince themselves that they can do something. And probably, you know, their parents were agricultural laborers and their grandparents, and something breaks where they think, well, you know, I can do this. And there's visible evidence that I am doing it because I'm making money from this and I'm keeping accounts and people are keeping you on track and seem to care what happens to me. So I think that is a really interesting thing. At the moment, what we're evaluating, to be honest, is a bundled program. You know, it's all everything together. So now people are getting interested, well, splitting the training from the, the assets, increasing the frequency of visits. And there's lots of bits and pieces. But there's something about internally these people changing from not believing they can do these, this work that the richer women do in the villages to becoming to coming to a belief that they can do it uh, by the and remember that after two years everything stops and we see them improving so that's that's the suggestion that they now think they're capable of more certainly than they were at the beginning of the program Um, <clears throat> I think, you know, obviously we're all veterans enough of uh, this kind of films to know that uh, the people that we see, well, okay. yes. the people that we be seeing are probably amongst the most confident. Um, my, fe my feeling about the BRAC program is that it has been extremely well thought through. Um, I think what sets it apart from many other kinds of programs is that the elements of the package 
each of them are a response to an analysis of the multidimensionality of deprivation. So when you have the consumption stipend, when you have the asset transfer, you've got people who have never been able to save, who can never plan for the future because uh, they're so busy with the present. So I see each of those elements as uh, absolutely critical and locking into each other. But central, I think, to it is, you know, look, I've been trying to persuade Barack to get away from the language of hand-holding <laughs> towards mentoring, you know, because there is something Touching. a little patronizing. And, you know, Imran Mateen from the very beginning used hand-holding, and I said, please, <laughs> you know, it's... Already we're talking about very poor women, yeah. and then you're going around talking about holding their hands. Yes. But really what you're doing is in any other circumstances would be called intensive mentoring. And I think that is, <laughs> that is actually central. Because at the end of the day, it isn't purely the asset uh, deficits that uh, define the ultra-poor. It is that capacity for aspiration, the capacity to think of the future a future orientation. And I myself have not studied the BRAC Ultra Poor Program, but I have studied the TUP, the targeting the Ultra Poor Program in Pakistan mm. and in West Bengal. And even though the Pakistan one that we studied was not a great success, one of the things that it left behind, one of the questions we asked the people was, if you were if you have a ladder that goes from zero, you know, very, very, very poor to 10, happy enough, you know, reasonably well off. Mm. Where were you in that ladder before and where are you now? And one woman who didn't do as well as she should have because the program was too rigid about the kind of assets it would transfer, one of the things she said that really stayed with me is, no, I haven't climbed up the ladder, but now I know there is a ladder. Mm. And I thought that business of giving people a sense of hope um, has been perhaps one of the most powerful uh, legacies of this program. How well it's done across the board, you know, I, I suspect like any program, it will have some, you know, people who didn't make it and some who did. I think we are very interested now in um, understanding better that business of the capacity for aspiration, you know. When the program pulls out in two years, three years, whatever, um, if it is true that the progress is sustained, to what do we owe it? And to what extent is women's agency a part of that process? Or to what extent has the agency passed once again to the men in the household? Mm -hmm. So I think, um, you know, on the whole, I am very positive. Uh, but I think there's still a great deal that we haven't understood. And the impact of mentoring we haven't understood. And there's another bit of a program that nobody talks about anymore. It started out with the idea of having committees of the better off in a village, <coughs> with the idea that when extremely poor women got into problems with neighbors or conflicts, they would have the support of this committee of better off people. Um, that seems to have dropped off the literature. I don't hear about it anymore. Mm -hmm. In the Pakistan program, they deliberately decided not to follow it. In West Bengal, they took a political decision not to follow it. Uh, but in Bangladesh, I understood that it had remained. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I, I wondered what became of it.
be interesting to kind of explore that a little bit further. Um, I don't know, Louis, if you want to add on to this. I think one of the things that strikes me about the, this concept of whether it is truly transformational or not, and to what we can attribute that to, is this question of choice, right? So women who typically had limited choice mm -hmm. in terms of the kinds of jobs they could do and the ways in which they could work and earn for their families now have the opportunities to select a particular type of agriculture or business and grow and build that. Is that something that you think is particularly unique to this context? And, and what is it about the Bangladesh or the South Asian context that you think is particularly challenging for uh, enabling women to have these kind of choices within the BRAC program or without it as well? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think the, the element of choice is, is, is critical and that's, um, you know, that's what the, the program is trying to do is that sort of element of empowerment. Um, but in South Asia, we're working in environments like Bangladesh with rapidly growing economies where there are quite a lot of options available. You know, you know Bangladesh is a very dynamic entrepreneurial society with, lot, you know, if you, the, the growing economy is providing opportunities. Now, when we go to some of some other countries in, in Africa in particular where, you know, they've got more dispersed population, the density of the population is much less, um, those kind of opportunities uh, are, are far reduced. You know, you've got very isolated communities um, in, in um, Uganda and Tanzania and so on. So there's not, there's not going to be the same access to markets. So when you're investing in live, livestock, obviously market access is critical, which works pretty well in Bangladesh. Um, but as we take it to you know, African countries, that's more of a challenge. Um, so... Yes, I think it is providing that, that, that choice is critical, but it's not, that's not necessarily the only thing. Um, the, the, the dynamics of the market are, going, are really critical and that varies considerably in different countries. Are there broader lessons that you think BRAC or other institutions that are trying to replicate this model can take on? Some of the things that Nyla and I were speaking up before were that when you try and scale up a program from one particular rural context in Bangladesh to even India or Pakistan, or as we saw from the IGC video, Uganda and Pakistan also are very interested in this. What are some of the challenges, both in terms of implementation as well as adapting a program like this to different contexts? It'd be great to kind of hear from all of you. Nyla, maybe if you want to start. Um, you know, one is the problem of adaptation, and the other is the problem of scaling up and they're slightly different problems. Uh, I think adaptation is somewhat easier in the sense that if you've got an organization that takes over this program, it ought to know its context. And the Pakistan program that we studied uh, was not a great success because the organization that did it was accustomed to working on microfinance with men. It was not accustomed to working on asset transfers with very poor women. And it didn't it, it didn't understand what adaptation would mean. Um, and as a result, I think the program wasn't very good. The West Bengal one was highly successful because the people on the ground knew their location. They knew when they hit a snag, how they could fix it and so on. So as long as you put the right kind of organizations, they will, uh, you know, they will make the adaptation. Scaling up, I think, is the problem because if you take the mentoring has been, in a sense, one of the most innovative aspects of this program. And if that scaling up is likely to be handed over to government, 
to do, you know, I think bureaucratic cultures uh, don't sit too well with um, the kind of responsive mentoring that might be needed. So you would have to then adapt the program to a bureaucratic culture, which may mean that you might have to lose some of this um, human to human interaction and try and work out what it is that government does best and hope for the best with that. So Robin, much of the work that the IGC is focused on doing is encouraging this kind of policy-led demand approach. And much of the focus of the conference that we held last December was about disseminating results, but also about matchmaking with potential policymakers who'd be interested in adapting this. What do you think are some of the other more specific challenges to really kind of adapting the BRAC model, and how, how do you convince policymakers that this is a good idea? It's an expensive program, 280 per household, magnified across a large national social safety net. What are the incentives or the sort of cost-benefit analysis that you would try and emphasize? Yeah, I think, I mean, the first thing, obviously, is we have been a fairly, you know, say initial but somewhat pro promising evidence, certainly from Bangladesh, and then the other the other studies are pilots, so who knows? But they all seem to be you know, everything, but pointing in fairly positive directions. I think the key selling point, and I, I agree that if it's going to get scaled up, it's going to have to be governments to take it up. You know, possibly doing some implementation with NGOs to you know, in weak institutional contexts like Africa. I think the big selling point is the following: that really this thing is sort of changes a little bit our view of poverty. So if you think about this country, the you know the view of poverty is really one where you provide transfers, you know, unemployment benefits, various types of benefits, and you unless people actually move out of unemployment, then you have to continue to to prop up their mm -hmm. consumption. And I think a lot of people have the same view of poverty in the, in developing countries that these people were sort of incapable of doing something different, that they were, there was something immutable about you know, them, which meant that they could not do the occupations that would make them richer and you know, would allow them to exit poverty. This program was taking the most disadvantaged people. You couldn't get anybody more than 93% illiterate, you know, 40 years old on average. They have dependent children. Um, they have no assets. They have no financial inclusion. and so. You know, they, they couldn't be more unlikely people to take on the occupations of richer people in the village. So the key selling point is then, well, it only lasts for two years, right? You pay the two years, you pay a lot for two years, but then you can remove the support. The alternative is you just prop it up, and then the you know, consumption drops down, and then you prop it up again. So it's a very different view of poverty. So if you're taking, you know, the problem of benefits and doles. You're saying that you don't have to continue doing that, that these people, not all of them, because there's certainly heterogeneity even within the, the population in Bangladesh, how much they benefited. But a good, very sizable and surprising fraction are going to stay out of poverty. You don't have to give them any more stuff. So if you're, view, you know, if you're looking at the fiscal purse, that's a very you know, big attraction for a number of reasons. And I think it fundamentally, you know, there's, there's sort of two views of poverty. You, the poor are poor because they are constrained in some ways, you can relax that constraint, versus the poor are poor because there's something about them inherently that makes them unable to be non-poor. This is sort of saying, well, this is really pointing to the fact that there are constraints, and if you break those constraints, then these people can 
can sort of get into types of work that are going to keep them out of this very vulnerable way of living that they were that they were you know embroiled in before. Yeah, I just um, <coughs> wanted to pick up because something that Robin said reminded me of something. And that is, what is interesting is not only are okay, why are people ultra poor? Why are they in extreme poverty? Part of it is economic, but quite a lot of it in South Asia is identity. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that was very, very remarkable in the West Bengal project is that <coughs> the entire, it was implemented by Trickle Up, which is an international NGO, working with a local partner who all, I think, used to be in Pradhan. And the people, the group that did best out of that program were the tribal groups, the Adivasis. And the reason, and they are the poorest, you know, of the poorest of the poor, they're the poorest of the poor, you know. Mm -hmm. So they had a, a history mm -hmm. of crab catching. That was the only, introduced by the British, the only occupation available to them. Why did they do so well? And the whole program agreed they did well. They did so well because they saw this as a once in a lifetime chance. Nobody had ever, no one from the government had ever offered them anything. They were almost doomed to continue crab catching. They didn't know how long uh, this program was going to be around, but you know, it was around for two years. And what was very interesting about them is they followed to the letter the advice they were given. People who were slightly better off amongst the extreme poor often took their own initiatives and you know, went off their own directions. And they were confident enough for that. But these people were almost like textbook students. Mm. You know, they, they followed the advice and they prospered. Mm. What they did do is they switched from goats to pigs, which is something that the uh, Adivasis often read and they were more familiar with. But on the whole, they followed the advice. And it is a reminder that the ex extreme poverty is very often a product of social identity, as much the intersection of social identity with long-standing economic deprivation and being locked out by your identity from a range of different occupations that are available to the other section of the world. So, I mean, a big part of this social identity constraint in South Asia is also going to be linked to gender identity. Ooh. So what is it that you think about programs like BRAC that particularly target women as their primary beneficiaries? Do you think that that's the right way forward? Or do you think that are there other ways that we can sort of emulate maybe the UN he for she targeting both men and women? Are there other kind of broader perspectives that can bring about a, like a wider sea change sort of culturally within the area? Well, <coughs> we do know that a disproportionate percentage of the ultra-poor are women. And they're often women without male breadwinners. So already you have a problem around, you know, where are these men? Um, secondly, we also know, <coughs> and actually that comes out from some of my microfinance studies, that assets that go to men are less likely to be shared with women than assets that go to women. So where there is a man, it is very likely that he will benefit from the assets that go to the woman. But where there is very close to men, it is far less likely that it will uh, benefit a woman's enterprise and so on. And I also think, <clears throat> even though we have a lot of men amongst the entrepreneur, their options are just that little bit larger because of their mobility, because of their identity. So if you are going to try and reach out to the entrepreneur, it seems reaching out to women and being sure that they will negotiate with their husbands or whichever 
male is in the household, in order to make sure everyone else benefits. That seems quite sensible. There is a question about, you know, are men feeling left out and, and so on. <clears throat> I think initially a lot of men do feel left out, but I think as programs progress and they begin to see the fact that these benefits are, are not going to threaten their status in the household too much, I think we'll get reconciled to it. So we're getting, going to start running out of time pretty shortly, so I'd like to open it up for Q&A, but if there's any other last comments from the panel before we do that. I mean, just, just to uh, pick up on the point around um, taking it to scale, and, and I agree with Robin that, you know, that governments are going to be absolutely critical here, um, and that to, to, to continue to ensure the quality of delivery that you've seen with NGOs like BRAC and the others, when it comes to government, that's going to be a serious challenge. So I would love to hear views from, from everybody here about you know, how, how to effectively um, introduce these kind of approaches into government. We've seen in many countries that introducing nationwide social protection schemes like the Ethiopian Social um, Productive Safety Net Programme, which have you know, key elements focused on graduation, um, which have not generally been very successful unless there's involvement with NGOs. Um, very intensively working with people. So, you know, the, the challenge of real scale, I mean, 1.6 million in Bangladesh is very big, um, is, is, is significant. But, you know, I think the resources are there. I mean, looking at what, if we wanted to take, um, work with 6 million um, households in, in, in Bangladesh on this kind of program, it might cost something in the region of 3 billion uh, dollars over the next few years, which is about half a percent of the GDP of the country. You know, this this is affordable, um, but whether it's doable is another question. Yeah, I guess just to kind of put this in a broader context, if you take these whatever they're called sustainable development goals, you know, there's something I don't know, yeah. a billion, not quite a billion, many seven, eight hundred million people. Mm -hmm. You want to get rid of all of those people by 2030? Now, a lot, a lot of that... You don't want to Eliminate them from poverty. Um, and I think when you think about it, clearly a lot of that's going to be done by economic growth as it's been done in the past. But there is a question, it's a kind of a moral question. These type of women that we're talking about, the crab catchers or the ag laborers and maids in Bangladesh, they're simply not going to, some of them, their children perhaps, are not going to be lifted out by that. So then, it won't be doing all the lifting of this first two billion people, but it can be doing some of it. And I think what's exciting about it is that it offers a, another tool that you can use, but it's an exciting tool because it, it, it changes everything about these people. It's not just that they're economically better off. There's many other dimensions that they seem to like. Mental health seems to improve. Uh, so I think that's a big deal. And then the second thing is that um, in terms of how you do it, it is imperative in this case that evidence keeps up with the enthusiasm. Yeah. <laughs> because in the case of microfinance, everybody went crazy, Nobel Peace Prizes were granted. It was a panacea for poverty. And then when you got the solid evidence, it's, well, maybe not so, such a big panacea, right? Mm -hmm. So I think 
being a little bit humble and saying, we don't know if it's going to work in the Congo or uh, we need to make this work. We need to figure out how to do that and you have evidence to show the way is important. And then finally, if <coughs> I think going back to the earlier point, I think if these women can do it, even if it's a small shift into these occupations which are like livestock rearing, if they can do it, it's really showing that there is something that is holding them back rather than something kind of inherently wrong with them. And I think that's a really important point, not just for the developing world, but also for the developed world, where you have people, you know, generations of people on benefits and so forth. Are they really incapable of work? Or is there sort of mindset and the way they've been brought up and psychologically what they believe they can do, is that also constrained from, from taking on occupations? Uh, and finally, I think what also makes this idea very credible is that it came from Bangladesh. And for other developing countries, having something come from Bangladesh and be doable in Bangladesh just makes it a bit more exciting and credible rather than you know, coming from the UK or, or the US. Um, so I, I think those are the sort of final things I wanted to say. So I think we have just about five to ten minutes for a couple of questions. It would be great to maybe we take three questions at a time. We need to school. Yeah, we can squeeze them. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, from the Department of Management, uh, master student. Um, the mentors, um, do you have any insights on the incentives they have and why they are so good, um, what they do? Have you, is there academic research on this? And would that be sort of part of the key to the replicability of this program? Um, I guess my question is, th there's a appeal of this model to, to give a very big benefit to the a small percent of the population that's in extreme poverty, but there also seems to be a bit of an assumption that it's a static group, and so just how do you handle the challenge of the fact that it's a dynamic group, that, and often you have people moving in and out of poverty and not necessarily the same people from year to year, even if the, the national percentages are the same. Um, and here I guess I could mention my experience from working with the Indonesian government where even when the government had interest to target especially the, the poorest 10 to 15 percent of the population, when you look at the data over a few years, it's almost half of that group that, that moves in and out. And so if you don't also give some benefit to the people that are just clustered just over the poverty line, you end up missing almost you know half of the the people that you're hoping to reach over time and so ultimately there may be it may, it may be also more politically feasible to target benefits to the 20 or 30 or 40 percent of the poorest in order to to reach the ultimate you know 10 to 15 percent poorest in any given year maybe one more Well, thank you for the talk. I think it's a really interesting program. Uh, my question concerns something you mentioned briefly before, uh, the heterogeneity of the households. So in evaluating the, uh, the impact of the graduation program, did you look at the different characteristics of the households? So, but for example, the, the assets at the start of the program, or do they have grandparents to take care of, or the number of children are there? Is there also a male breadwinner in the family? Um, and did this influence the outcome for the different uh, families and could that maybe have an impact on the program design? Thanks. So maybe we just go down the line and you answer mm -hmm. the questions that you want to respond to. That's the easiest way. Okay. Um, <clears throat> I actually don't know about the incentives. 
for the mentors, and I'd be fascinated if someone does. Um, on the static uh, nature of, at least in Bangladesh and India, there is a, a huge overlap between extreme and chronic poverty. So while there may be people moving in and out of the poverty line, there is still also a large group of people who have remained poor for a very, very long time. And it may, you know, intergenerationally. And I think it's trying to break down those barriers that I think the ultra poor program has been particularly good. In general, people sort of aim microfinance and, uh, you know, employment guarantee schemes, etc., to those who are much closer to the poverty line. But this is a program for people who have been in extreme poverty over a very long period and that uh, experience certain very resilient barriers to getting out of poverty. Um, I, I let the others answer the heterogeneity question, but <coughs> in terms of the research that we did, there was considerable heterogeneity. In West Bengal, they targeted much better, and so almost everybody that they targeted was came from the extreme poor group, but they varied, as I said earlier, according to identity. So there were Muslims, there were Dalits, and there were Adivasis, and each of these groups, um, particularly very conservative Muslims, were less likely to benefit because the women wouldn't go out and so on. The, the more, the, sorry, the more conservative Muslims, the less conservative, the women did do quite a lot of trade and they would, you know, do various things. But as I said, the, the Adivasis managed. The West, the Pakistan one was not a good example because they didn't use BRAC's uh, methodology for targeting, for finding out who is ultra poor. They left it to the head of the village or the kinship group or whatever to identify people and very often he identified his own relatives or whatever. So you had a lot of people who weren't particularly poor and guess what? They did it <laughs> extremely well because they started out with a you know, with an advantage. Uh, so just to respond a bit on the question around the, the, the quality of the mentors, um, I think, you know, Brax experience is, is very good quality training of those mentors who are Brax staff <coughs> uh, is absolutely critical there. Um, and we've worked out a very detailed program of support to those people and, and you know, really refined that over the years, which is sort of a, a Brax hallmark, if you like, of of how to, you know, working and developing over and we've actually just published a, a toolkit around the entire pr approach um, called Propel, which is available online now, um, which does detail some of these approaches and strategies um, to the training and development. Um, um, and just about the selection of the, the, the households, um, you know, BRAC has been using sort of community wealth ranking methodology to, um, to, to work with the communities, with these committees in the communities to select the right, the right households, and that seems to have been quite robust. Okay, um, so mentors, the fascinating thing is that the, the, the set of people who work, so these people are BRAC employees, are BRAC officers, is that the, when you look at who BRAC's recruits and who the kind of local government recruits, they're not dissimilar. Something different happens in BRAC. So if you go to a BRAC office in rural Bangladesh, very clean, very well organized, the person's actually there, you know, the filing's done properly. You go to a government office, you know, all the files are falling over, there's like 
you know, filthy, the person's not there. And so something in the motivation of people within BRAC is different. I don't know what that is. They do a lot of training. They get people to the regional headquarters a lot. There's something different happening with those people. And clearly they want to and do go out and talk to these women weekly and are enthusiastic. And, but, but how you replicate that in the Congo, I don't know. Um, on, the, on, the, on the kind of movement of people in and out, I think that is a big deal because we, you know, we're just selecting at one point, but we're selecting based on this participatory wealth thing. So people have to agree this is the poorest lot. They have no land, their children are supposed to be in school, they're not, et cetera, et cetera. And so you identify, I think, you know, we showed that on, in, on impartial criteria like consumption, you are identifying the poorest. That doesn't mean that next year, people have a health shock or there's a drought or something. So you, you, I guess the way to think about it, you're not fully solving the problem. You sort of partly are because what we show is once you get, start to get land and so forth, you become much more resilient. Once you have a diversified asset base, you're just less likely to kind of go, you know, because before that, your whole income is your wage. If your wage disappears because it's a drought, it's just basically a wage over your price. And if wage disappears and the price goes up, you know, that's, that's sort of uh, uh, deeply damaging. In terms of the heterogeneity thing, I think that's something we don't fully understand, but it's very much there, and it's there in the following sense. I know we're not supposed to say these things in a literary festival, but if you look at the quantile <laughs> treatment effects, which is essentially the distribution of effects across uh, the wealth distribution, what you find is that, so let's say we do that by consumption, per capita consumption. The people who are gaining most of the program are, are at the, in other words, there's an upward sloping effect. So the people who had, or in the, the upper consumption centiles, are gaining more. The people, the very, very poorest people by consumption are gaining less. So there's probably still constraints down for those very poorest people that you're not breaking. But what's interesting is it's all above zero. There's nobody who's being harmed by the program. And that also follows if you go to the next class up, the near poor. So it's not like other people are losing out because you know, they can't sell their meat or their uh, eggs and so forth. And so finally, I think th what, what that suggests is that we don't, you know, we can't, we can't see this as a panacea. There's still going to be people who are not going to benefit from this type of program. But then you have to think, well, what is it? Why, why didn't they successfully operate the asset? And with the kind of evaluation we've done so far, we can't, we can't break that out. So unfortunately, we're running a little bit out of time, but those of you who are interested in learning a little more about the mechanisms and the more detailed stuff, there are publications at the back of the room. Thank you all for coming, and a big warm thanks to the panel for